Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Jesse Eisenberg, from Zombieland and Batman v Superman to his new dark comedy, The Art of Self-Defense. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Yes, the guest today, returning champion, Mr. Jesse Eisenberg. It's been a while since Jesse has been on the podcast. He was one of the early guests on Happy, Sad, Confused way back when, five years ago. Thrilled to have Jesse back. As I said to him, he's one of the few people on the planet that probably speaks faster than I do. So adjust your settings accordingly. Lots of content in a relatively short amount of time coming at you. But Jesse is, um, there's no one like Jesse Eisenberg. I, I, I really uh, love talking to him. He is an intellectual. He is um, funny and smart and interesting and kind of in his own bizarre, wonderful world. Like he's not, you know, he's not plugged into pop culture, doesn't watch movies or TV. I mean, he's he just makes his great, art. He writes his plays, does his pieces for The New Yorker, and acts in a wide variety of interesting films. And as I said, they kind of run the gamut from big blockbusters like like Zombieland and like Batman v Superman. And and he's and you know, he's n- never shy about dipping his toe in that arena. He's going to be in the new Zombieland film that's coming out later this year. Uh, but he's also well known for starring in great smaller independent films from way back when, when he, when he kind of came to the fore in Roger Dodger and the squid and the whale, um, all the way up to his new film, which is called the art of self-defense. And I really enjoyed this one. This is a, a, a very funny movie, a very quirky, odd movie from writer, director, Riley Stearns. It kind of confronts, um, our notions of masculinity, toxic masculinity. Uh, Jesse plays kind of a put upon gentleman who's mugged and seeks to, better himself, I guess, or, or find some purpose by taking a martial arts class. Um, he's led by Alessandro Novoa, who is maybe not the best teacher in the world, uh, takes some very unexpected twists and turns. The dialogue is very specific and very arch and very funny. Um, and I definitely recommend it. It's out, uh, this Friday, uh, seek it out. The art of self-defense. Uh, we cover a lot in this conversation. We talk about all different kinds of films in his career. We talk about, um, I should say, you know, we, we talk a bit, of course, you know, you know, I, I feel obligated to bring up something like Lex Luthor and, and, and Batman v Superman. It's something that we're all so curious about it. It's such, such kind of an odd part of his career and filmography. And I kind of have a little fun with him. I, I, I kind of say in jest that, you know, it's something to the effect of the, you're probably not playing this character again. Uh, we're not going to see a Justice League part two. I know the DC fans are very sensitive and very like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how people think that I'm like shitting on DC films and that's not my intention at all. I just want to be clear about that. Um, but as somebody that follows the industry and follows the, you know, the way these things work, I don't think we're seeing Jesse Eisenberg with all due respect to play Lex Luthor again, or we're seeing a Justice League part two. So, uh, before you guys come at me, just know that's that's where I was coming at, just with a kind of a very cognizant um, awareness of where the DCU films are right now. Um, what else to mention? Um, 
yeah, this is this is a fun conversation. Kind of uh, you know rambles in the best possible way. Take takes off on different tangents. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. I certainly did. Um, there's also an amazing amazing story of um, Jesse's own tussle with Bob Weinstein on a infamously um, cursed project, ironically called Cursed. It was a Wes Craven werewolf movie that like got just destroyed in terms of production and reshot, et cetera. Anyway, stay tuned for that story. It's kind of fascinating. Um, currently, I'm in Los Angeles as I tape this introduction. I am, uh, I'm doing some really cool interviews and, and podcasts that are coming at you very soon about a very high-profile summer movie um, that I feel like I'm not allowed to talk about just yet, but stay tuned. Important, exciting content coming at you very soon. Uh, also coming soon, I'll be at San Diego Comic-Con next week um, doing my thing for MTV News, talking to the casts of virtually every, it <laughs> seems like I'm looking at the schedule and it's kind of making me sweat a little bit, but um, every major film and TV show that's over there, or at least it seems like that, probably about 15 or 20 um, interviews I'll be doing and we'll be putting all of those out there on MTV News's uh, social media platforms, MTV News News's YouTube page, and I'll of course be um, tweeting out the stuff and putting it up on Instagram. So you won't be able to miss it. And if you can't get down to San Diego to say hi, at least hopefully you'll be able to get a sense of the madness that is Comic-Con through my travels and work. So I hope you guys enjoy that. Um, it's always a blast for me, even if it also almost always nearly kills me. <laughs> it's all for you guys. Um, anyway, without any further ado, let's get to the main conversation of the day. Jesse Eisenberg, again, the film is The Art of Self-Defense. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to Happy, Sad, Confused. Spread the good word, please, guys. Uh, and I hope you guys enjoy this, uh, this chat with Jesse. Here it is. Jesse Eisenberg is back in my office. Yes, well, different fine. office. Good to see you, buddy. It looks very similar. Hi, Josh. <laughs> I just basically just picked it up and moved it downtown. Yeah, yeah. Well, Wait, didn't you have a window behind you last time? I did. So I've downscaled in that way. Yeah, I'm yeah, in a yeah. box. Yeah. But I think it's better. I, I, I venture to say it's better decorated. I now have booze. Probably a little early for that. Right, and, right, right. Um, and I'm out of Times Square. So I think there are some improvements. You're right. You're right. There's nothing nothing better than getting out of Times Square. Um, it's always good to see you. It's been you were actually pretty early on in the podcast. It, can you believe it's been five years since you've been on the on the show? Oh, is that right? Yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, it must have been about five years. Um, it's always good to have you. We I think you're the only person that talks faster than I I do. So we're gonna get like in 35 minutes, people are gonna get like three hours of content. That's right. This is the first time they're not gonna play you at double speed. <laughs> exactly. It's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you has a director ever asked you to talk? slower in a film? Uh, yeah, Kelly Reichardt. She, um, I did a movie with her called Night Moves, mm -hmm. and she is known for these very, like... Deliberate, yes, slow-paced. Yes, deliberate, yeah. slow-paced movies. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, and she, yeah, basically just said, talk slower all the time, and then um, uh, she was right. I, I mean, I like that. I always like... Uh, yeah, I always like being asked to do something that, like, I don't instinctively do. Right. Because it just brings me into the role, like, a little more. Sure. Like, easily, oh, I'm know. actually earning my paycheck. I'm acting now. I'm yeah. doing something. I guess I don't think of it in, in fiduciary terms. <laughs> I just, like, it just, like, uh, it forces me out of my own, my own patterns. Right. Yeah, so I loved it. I loved it. I would like to do it again. And then sometimes I'm, like, in, in this current movie, The Art of Self-Defense, I talk slower, but that's just because my character is, like, not a smart person. He's just, like, he's this kind of simple guy who's, like, a child. Yes. And so I talked slower, but that's 
But not because he's talking slower, just because he thinks differently. What is, what is the, is there, generally speaking, the best and worst kind of direction that you can receive in a film? Like, is there the kind of direction that you love and the kind of direction that you hate in terms of yeah. the instruction? Your friend Ruben Fleischer once told me, okay, now smile. You know, he was like sitting seven rooms down from where we were acting. And I just heard yeah. you know, somebody scream, <laughs> okay, now smile. And, uh, you know, that's the worst yeah. you can give. And uh, Ruben's a friend. I've since, we've since, we've since hashed it out, you know. Um, <laughs> there was that three-week three break in filming where you had to work it out. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And they had to fix the camera that I threw on the floor. Um, no, but uh, no, but otherwise I love, I love like, I love tons of direction. I love line readings. Like, uh, no, I love all that stuff. Because to me, you know, I want, as much as possible to rid myself of my own instincts just because sure. it's more of an interesting challenge for me and because it I, uh, puts me in a more like emotional place. I'm unsure of myself and yeah. that usually is better for acting. And so I love that kind of thing. I don't ever feel the need to like hold on to something that I think is good about myself. I also don't watch any of the movies I've been in. So I'm not like aware of like things that I think are like cutesy things that work. Like I just, I'm not aware of that. Yeah. And I'm completely suspicious of any time I get a good reaction to something because I assume it's not going to be good the next time. Well, and I guess the goal for many actors, and I've heard this from many people, is getting out of your own head, getting out of your own way. Precisely that, yeah. Um, so that that's part of the reason why you haven't seen a film of yours. Because I remember you said this to me last time too. Like, I feel like you said that the last film you saw of yours was like Zombieland. Yeah, because uh, Woody Harrelson like dragged me yeah. into a screening, and I like I loved it, but I, I it's such a that movie somehow for a neurotic like, it's just not a good thing not a place to be to watch yourself for two hours on a giant screen yeah or anybody I mean if you notice like when people come back from a vacation and they are happy to show you two pictures of the thousand that they took yeah. that's the equivalent feeling I have you know that like I like two or would it be 0.2% of the experience right. and then the other you know uh, ex you know the other uh, parts I just is mortifying so um, and does that apply to do you see other films that are not yours very very rarely I guess I saw you in top five on an airplane and <laughs> I guess I just assumed oh you're in every movie because yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, the yeah. Tom Cruise of you and Chris Rock are in each <laughs> movie journalist cameos yeah, yeah exactly but no I just I, I never do I stopped watching stuff when I started acting and stuff I guess I just I don't know. It kind of made me aware of like the artifice of it, and then I just got self-conscious, and and now I have a child, so you know I've, I have a good excuse. Yeah, yeah. So just if you're in Peppa Pig, I'll assume then you really are in every movie, but <laughs> otherwise I don't watch anything. It's got Team Horowitz on that. Yeah, what, yeah. What, <laughs> what about plays like theater? Obviously, you're a playwright. I mean, I, do you do you consume more of that? I try to go to like I have friends who have plays. So I I you know I try to go to that, but. Uh, yeah, also, I feel like anytime I'm watching something that is similar to something I do, I just can't get past, like, the artifice of it. I just yeah. see the fakeness of it, and it makes me self-conscious then when I'm doing it, because I'm aware of it not as, like, this sincere, you know, uh, manifestation of my thoughts, right. but, like, actually this kind of, I don't know, just this, like, fake thing that's a commodified. This is a hugely selfless act that you've done. You have sacrificed your enjoyment of so much pop culture <laughs> art. No, I watch it NBA basketball. <laughs> I relentlessly, I watch, I have like NBA league pass, which allows you to watch like really obscure games, you know, yeah. like Sacramento Kings. That's, I didn't even know if it's, I didn't even know it's a city, let alone a basketball team. And, um, and you yet can, you're married with the child and yeah, your yeah. wife is st stuck with you through obscure, uh, basketball. They, okay. So uh, Sacramento's on the West coast apparently. So yes. family goes to sleep. 11 o'clock, the games begin. Daddy time begins. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. I watch. I can watch them play basketball. <laughs> Do you have any attachment to the New York Knicks, the sad New York Knicks? Zero. I never had an attachment to the Knicks. Probably I grew up in New York and New Jersey. Yeah. But also because they were good when I was young. Yes. This was like the Patrick Ewing era. Yeah. And so I didn't like them because they were like the front runners that everybody liked where I, where I lived. So yeah. I never liked them. 
at, at the beginning, I never liked them because they were great. And so I had a root, you know, for the underdog and all my friends like the Knicks, you know, you had to differentiate. And now I don't like them because they're impossible to like and owned by a guy who makes it really, really difficult. Do you have, have you ever done fantasy sports? My cousin is like the number one fantasy football expert, Jamie Eisenberg. Okay. Yeah. Um, he is like, uh, ranked all the time as like the top predictor of, of football. So I, I, whenever I'm in England, betting is legal there. Yes. So I always just ask him for picks, and he's never been wrong. Right. The degenerate comes out, and you just really go <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Exactly. <laughs> Put that zombie um, land money to use. That's right. I'm there with my little ticket stubs. You know, one of these people <laughs> throwing them out. Does OTB still exist out here? Yeah. Yeah. Remember exactly. OTB. Of course, I remember that. Yeah. Of course. He used to cross oh. the street, so you didn't have to smell the. <laughs> OTB. Yeah. If I had met you as a ten-year-old, was was it basically you but shorter? Was it like a? No, I was the same height. Um, <laughs> wow. No, no, no. I was a really. I was like a sad kid. So like, no, I would have been quiet and sad. But I like jokes. Mm-hmm. But like now, I have found like a venue like you, you really to did, like yeah. make them. What about you? Were you funny at ten? Uh, yeah, I was similarly very shy and awkward and all of that. And I yeah. still am, arguably. I just overcompensate on a microphone now. But yeah, you could call it overcompensating, but also like channeling it for good. Yeah. Our jokes now are like have an audience and we found it. I always knew this too. When I was a kid, I always knew when I'm an adult, I'm going to be fine. I just have to get past this point where I'm stuck with people I didn't choose to be with. (laughs) Now, were you, you talked before about your OCD, like uh, dealing with that. Like, did you, were you diagnosed as a kid? I was diagnosed with so many things. I, (laughs) I I was crazy as a kid. I missed a year of school and went to a mental institution. Yeah. I had like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a tough childhood. I was like a terrified kid. At what age? Were you 13? Holy crap. Yeah. We do share a lot in common now that oh, you're really? saying this. Because my freshman year of high school, I did not go to school for a year. Oh, seriously? I literally just ditched school and was up to nothing bad. Oh, I just yeah. would literally like go into like fast food restaurants and buy every uh, newspaper and just read them by myself. How did you get credits for school? I ended up doing a bunch of summer school. and Yeah, and, me too. I missed up. sixth grade. That's crazy. Yeah, really? What, were you depressed or just bored? I, or? I, I've never really diagnosed it myself. Yeah. But like, you know, I had like grandparents that passed away in a short period of time. My okay. older siblings went away. Maybe I, you know, I, I don't know. I was on my own and I, oh, Jesus. and I was, yeah. I was smart enough to, I mean, it's a, it's a long, funny story, but uh, that I've never channeled for like a, a screenplay or a short story, which you I should make some money from. I it. should, yeah, I come should. On. No, but like, I, this is what, how crazy I was, Jesse. I would, so my freshman year, I, went, I was going to Stuyvesant ostensibly for the first month of school. Oh, oh, oh. Then I stopped going wow. and my guidance counselor would call uh, would they, they would send notes to my parents saying that I was not attending school, and I would impersonate the guidance counselor on the phone to my parents oh my and convince them that I was going to school. Did you have some reasonable similarities to this person? Apparently, I could just approximate a deep voice, that's and my amazing. parents were rather gullible, that's and amazing. I got away with it for about a year. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Anyways, your story. Best school in the country, too. <laughs> that is. I mean, it's, it's a hard um, school to get into. So oh wait, so uh, without, I mean, uh, as much as you're comfortable talking about it, like, so where were you at, at like that lost year or going? Oh, I had like a tutor actually. Cause I, I couldn't go to school. I, I was, I, I was so terrified. Yeah. yeah. But I knew, I knew as a kid, like I knew once I get out of this weird period, I'm going to be better for it. You know, in fact, I talk to kids with like anxiety now, yeah. you know, and stuff like, um, and my wife, my wife works with, uh, my wife works in like 150 New York city schools. My best friend is a teacher for kids who are formerly incarcerated. And like, um, I talked to the kids who've been like through, you know, real challenging situations. And, um, you know, I always tell them the same thing. I was like, whatever, like anxiety you're feeling now, whatever difficulty is going to serve you so well as an adult. And it's really true. You know, by contrast, think about the kid who's like the quarterback, you know, and then like, Yes. still reliving his high school. This is like the alternative that you should not strive for. This is true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, we, okay, so when you, you got 
you started acting pretty early on. Was that partially, I know your mom was a performer. She was like birthday party clown. Birthday yeah, party yeah, clown, yeah. amazing. Yeah. Did she ever perform at your own birthday parties? I think she did, or if she didn't, she had like, she um, bartered with the uh, local magician. You know, right. so like she Part would do. Yeah, to get the friends and family discount. That's right, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so did that, how much did that have to do with your own um, interests? Uh, was it sort of like, were your parents find, trying to find something for you, or did you find acting yourself? Um, yeah, I... I, um, no, my, my older sister was like involved in some like, uh, children's theater group. So I went with her and then I was basically so desperate to find a way out of school. So like I wanted to do like theater in New York city. So when I was like 14, I started auditioning for theater in New York city, essentially just to like get out of going to school. And like, cause if you got into a play, which I did, you'd get to miss Wednesday and, Mm -hmm. you know, cause they do the matinee or whatever. And like, I was just so desperate. And then I started finding the art, the arts of it, the creativity of it. And then since then, like, um, it, you know, obviously changed my life. And I now think of it as in, in, in like correct, responsible, mature, artistic terms. But at the time I was kind of just thinking of, I just needed a way out of this uh, situation. So what, what brings you the most pleasure or or boggles your mind the most considering all your accomplishments now in terms of like, you know, you've written plays, you've starred in some, some great artistic achievements, some great commercial achievements. Sometimes they overlap, sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Writing for The New Yorker, et cetera. Um, like, are there any of those those accomplishments that that tickle you, mo- tickle the 10-year-old version of yourself most, do you think? Or? Yeah, I mean, the thing I take the most pleasure from is, like, finishing a writing a play and then doing, like, the first reading around a friend's table. Like, that to me is the most exciting thing, probably because it's the culmination of a lot of work, which is to yeah. say, you know, let's say a year or six months of writing something, and then also performing for with no judgment which is to say I'm just sitting around a table reading with people I also tell people who say they want to act I say if you if you if you want to pursue acting pursue it uh, think think that you're going to do it for free for the rest of your life and right. then pursue it because people tend to watch you know movie stars or yeah. something and think they want to do that but that's like the great rarity but if you actually like the craft of you know the, the enjoyment of the, doing the actual thing then you can pursue it because you'll be happy doing it in any venue so I love yes and I also love rehearsing plays because again there's no audience there yeah when I start doing my plays for an audience I just get panicky because you know you're just just being judged and especially when you work off Broadway it tends to be like theater people going to the show not yeah. tourists as yeah. much and so they're just you know increasingly you know unhappy you know I mean <laughs> you know because they they're in on it you know and they're competitive or whatever as would I be going to plays and yeah. stuff you know so that so so the plays I do tend to have like you know maybe not the most forgiving audiences either sure sure do you okay so, so moving on because we we, uh, we should pay some service to a film that I very much enjoyed oh, thanks. Uh, the art of self-defense uh, is the new film uh, Riley Stearns is the writer director um, this one, I know this, this, I've heard you talk about this one. You, this is one of your favorites. Oh done. yeah. Yeah. Far and away. This, yeah. the, the script is, is really unique and special. I mean, I, I have some of the, the early, I, you know, you can tell early on from just the, the way the, the dialogue is presented, the, the tone of it, yeah. um, that this is special. Um, how was your character presented on the page? Is there much description to your character on the page or? Um, no, in fact, Riley's, he's a really brilliant writer. Um, and, uh, and 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 because he's so brilliant he really doesn't put that much in the script but it's pretty it it's kind of self-explanatory but also the people speak in such strange ways yeah. that the first month of just of meeting with Riley was just I just wanted him to assure me that this is not the kind of comedy that um you know that I would associate with like 90s comedies where it's like kind of the you know 
you know, put upon protagonist who then finds his inner strength. I said, this is a skewed, odd world where yes. we're supposed to speak in this kind of stilted way, like children. Basically, right. everybody talks like a child, kind of. Yeah. And even the, even the, even the kind of malevolent characters talk like a mean kid yeah. rather than like, <laughs> you know, rather than like, uh, you know, a scary cult leader, which this antagonist is. But anyway, um, and he just kept assuring me, yes, this is not the kind of, you know, uh, you know, nervous protagonist who who finds his inner strength. So that was like. That that that's why I wanted to do the movie too because the movie felt to me like this incredibly brilliant twist on the sports genre. Yes, the sports genre being you know the you know Rudy the hapless guy who then becomes the unlikely hero through sport. Yes, you know uh, so this is a really brilliant satire on on masculinity and by extension kind of a satire on the sports movie tropes. Totally. What was your so what was growing up. What was your notion of like ideal masculinity in film or TV? Was it like did you have like a a person on the wall figuratively or metaphorically? <laughs> no, I mean I okay. So in the nineties, I'm just looking around your office and you have like um, you know all these strong guys from nineties. <laughs> you have like Kurt 90s. Russell up there. Yeah, yeah. Kurt Russell. Uh, Michael J. Fox is actually a, he's he's more relatable kind sure. of. Uh, but Paul Newman is certainly a, an icon of yeah. masculinity. And I wasn't like a big fan of movies growing up. And I partly I guess the reason is I found those guys to just be these kind of like inaccessible cartoon characters. Right. You know, I'm talking about like the Stallone Schwarzenegger era. I'm sure you felt the same way. Yeah. Like, this is, I mean, it's just like not something I would associate myself with. Um, but then I guess as I got older, maybe this was like in early 2000, Ben Stiller started being like in all these popular movies. And that to me was like a little more, it seemed a little more relevant to my world. Right. And then when I was like 16 or 17, somebody gave me a videotape of a Woody Allen movie. I'd never seen anything of his. I heard the name, of course, because it's an right. unusual name. And that was like a revelatory because to me, he was talking about things First of all, just personally, what he is yeah. was was felt relevant and similar to me, similar to the family I, you know I grew up with, with little asides and you know kind of self awareness. But even more interesting to me was that he was discussing things that were just interesting to him. He wasn't dumbing himself down to make himself more accessible. He would yeah. talk about the Knicks because he liked the Knicks, but he would also talk about Freud because he was interested in you know uh, you know this therapy. And um, and so when I started like writing stuff, that that was just my just it seeped into me in the best way, which is don't censor yourself. If you're interested in something, yeah. don't censor it because you think not enough people are going to also be interested in it. Write the thing that excites you the most uh, and and hope, you know, that there's enough people on the Venn diagram of your interests that are going to be curious about it, too. To, to that point, like, are you in some ways, are you surprised that this is going to sound like a backhanded compliment or something, but that you are as successful as you are, you're as big kind of a a movie you're a movie star as you are do you know what i mean like that you that you because you have very particular tastes and sensibilities and attitude mm -hmm. that i guess you know to your point there there are the the woody allens the dustin hoffmans the, the, the those people that are more in league with with your vibe yeah. but did you imagine your career being as being the celebrity that you've become well i find well, well, I don't know. I mean, everything you're describing to me sounds incredibly tenuous anyway. Like, you know, I don't know that I'm going to be in other things that are yeah. going to be popular. So I don't know about that. But up until this point, yeah, I've been in like popular movies that I would not have associated somebody like me with, whether it be a superhero movie or whether it yeah. be a magic movie. I, you know, these things are not something that I would have, you know, let's say as an outsider, if I was an outsider of myself, put, put, pegged me for. Um, but two things come to mind. One is that 
Jews are really good at assimilating into things uh, that are not their own culture. Mm. And two is I grew up in the suburbs in New Jersey where you had no choice but to assimilate. It wasn't like I grew up in New York where everybody was like me and talked sure. like me. And, you know, I could, let's say, sustain the personality I have in high school. Like I couldn't, you know, I had to like fit into like, you know, a jock high school. So I know that a little bit. Uh, I probably know that world a little bit better than like if I were to grow up in the Upper West Side or something. But right. um, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, not, <laughs> that, like not that you're so Literal niche. Upper West Side. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 not that, yeah, not that you're so niche. But like I, I my personality as no, it is you. now couldn't succeed in the schools I went to in New Jersey. You know what I mean? Fair enough. And so maybe I had to change a little bit. And also, uh, and I guess I, my taste is not that specific. Like, to me, like, the, I loved doing the Batman Superman movie. Like, I loved all my scenes and I thought they were, like, great, written yeah. by this brilliant guy, Chris Terrier. To mm. me, that fit in line completely with my tastes. I'm not a comic book fan or whatever, right. but, like, that movie and what I got to do in it fit totally in line with my sensibilities, sense of humor, dramatic sure. ideas. Um, yeah, so uh, so some of the popular things I've been in have coincided with my taste. We just did Zombieland 2, and to me, there's, like... Uh, to me, it's the humor in Zombieland is as highbrow as it gets in mainstream comedy. Mm. It's just mixed with a lot of lowbrow things, yes. like killing zombies and some lowbrow humor. But the reason Zombieland is good is because actually it doesn't deny highbrow references and strange allusions to things that wouldn't otherwise be in that genre. Right. And so to me, it's not a compromise of humor at all. In fact, to me, it's like a kind of aspirational uh, comedy piece. It, it, it strikes me that have you worked with, with on more films than uh, with Woody Harrelson than any other actor? Around probably maybe except Woody Harrelson is in tons of movies. <laughs> he's Still. in he's in so many movies. Look true. him up; you'd be yeah. surprised that he's and in as so many funny movies. Because I'm sure you've had. I mean, you know him better than I. But I've talked to him quite a bit over the years, and he every time I talk to him, he's like, "I'm trying not to work. I don't want to work. I just want to live in Maui and not work." He says this all the time, but then he says, "But then you know, somebody says me something, and I think, God, how can I not do that?" Yeah, yeah he's he's the, the thing about him is he transcends. He's one of these actors that transcends genre, that transcends personality. And in a way, when you watch him, you're kind of enjoying him, but yes. it's skewed in some way. And he's just up for anything. He has no ego. Yeah. He has no, uh, he has no um, timidity. He has no self-consciousness. And he's just brilliant. And also he spent, he's not a guy who grew up as a Jewish East Coast New, uh, New Yorker and comic. Yeah. But he spent like seven years or maybe more on a sitcom. Yes. And so he has this kind of Borscht Belt. Amazing timing. Yeah, yeah. Borscht Belt timing, yeah. but he's a Southerner with an accent. And so he just, he's this incredibly unusual person. I, yeah, because I mean, I grew up with that. That's arguably my favorite sitcom growing up. And I feel like I underestimated him. I feel like we all underestimated him. Like he, he, like, I think we mistook him for that character. And he is right. like the versatility that he has shown in his career is. Yeah, it's unbelievable because he can play the simpleton. And I think also because we're filtering it through our ears. And when we hear a Southern accent, it feels like, oh, maybe he's kind of like, yeah. uh, you know, maybe he's not in on the joke. Right. Yeah. Um, but he is, he's in on the joke. And that's what I think sustains him is that he's in on it. He's aware of it. And he doesn't, um, he doesn't like, uh, he's not condescending to Southern right. culture or something. You know, he, he's, you know he's funny and honest. Does he still have the like? Doesn't he have like some kind of crazy van that he has with him on yeah. those shoots? Yeah, he has like a trailer that's like eco-friendly on diesel and everything. Yeah. Have you ever uh, played chess or smoked weed with Woody, uh, Willie Nelson in his uh, diesel trailer? You gave me a way to answer that that could just imply chess. <laughs> so yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Damn it. <laughs> well, we did do, I, I will remind you, we did do a whole, you did a whole press junket, yeah, and we did a whole bit on the American Ultra. About it's less weed. subversive now that it's legal, isn't it? Our, our cool press junket <laughs> idea. Do you, do you remember, this is one of my favorite moments ever in an interview I've done, yeah. quote unquote interview, sure. where I was, um, I was showing you and Kristen a bunch of like random photos. It was kind of like in this, you know, mm-hmm. like we're weird, like smoking environment. Right, I mean, and you guys had mentioned being freaked out by the image throughout your life of fingers growing out of fingers. Oh yeah. Yeah. I do remember that. And then like yeah. five minutes later, we happened to have that photo. <laughs> yeah, to show yeah, you. Yeah. I, it's one of my favorite reactions ever in a conversation I've had on camera. It was your <laughs> reaction to seeing that, that photo. <laughs> yeah. I've seen that picture since it's an odd looking picture. It's yeah, haunting you. It's uh, wait, why did you have it? Or this was just part of like this it, stone the stone crazy things. Bit, Psychedelic. Like, yeah, yeah. 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 Right. Just react to this. And you would happen to mention it three minutes earlier. <laughs> right. 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 Bizarre. <laughs> yeah. That is strange. I do remember that. I think she was the one who brought it up though. Cause I don't think it would have occurred to me to even think yes, about that. Image. I think so. I yeah. think so. Um, so what was it like? Uh, so zombie went 10 years later. Um, you guys have all grown up. Some have changed and you know, you're, you're married now. Abigail's yeah. much older. She was a kid when, when she yeah. started, was that a surreal experience to sort of see? And it really speaks to like what Ruben and the script and you were talking about it before, like that, you guys don't need to do Zombieland 2 at this point. Like, none of you really do. Emma does not need to do a Zombieland movie. <laughs> yeah, I think, like, we wanted to do them. I, I think what happened was we wanted to do a sequel afterwards, and the movie company, Sony, was, like, obviously wanting to do it because it was a popular movie. Yeah. But um, I think just because all of us were busy with other things that we, it didn't feel like this thing we needed to, like, shoehorn for, you know, uh, some kind of like, um, you know, exploitation of the first one or capitalization sure. on a popular movie. So I think um, we were just waiting for like the right script to come in. Several really brilliant writers wrote drafts and it just didn't exactly feel right. Yeah. Um, they felt that way too. And then finally, Rhett and Paul, they had done like two Deadpool movies, the yes. writers. And so when they were like finally free to like rewrite a draft that they had written, you know, seven years earlier or something, uh, they got it in a good place. And then, um, and then I think we all felt like now it's worthwhile to do. Ruben uh, gave me a sneak peek at like a crazy action sequence that's like a, a masked continuous shot. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, right. Is, yeah. Uh, that looks unbelievable. Oh, so when you, <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. It is great. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And those are the most fun to film. I did one in American Ultra 2 where like it's like a, it's like a five minute action sequence, but they make it look like it's one continuous shot. Right. And what's great about that as an actor is you know exactly when you get it right because you have to choose a take before you can do the next take because it right. has to match seamlessly. And so as actors we just love it because we get to see it what we did wrong and we know as soon as we're done it's just the most fun thing on set everybody's like exhilarated the whole crew loves I'm it sure we all you know yeah it's, it's just a different experience um by the way uh, on your imdb it still lists justice league part two as an upcoming film for you you might want to oh. have team eisenberg address the situation it's such a big team i don't even know yeah <laughs> who, do, who do you even ask to yeah, address yeah. this actually it's it's actually a league <laughs> <laughs> speaking of leagues here's my question for you you had a, you had a bit at the end of justice league mm. where you talk to Joe Manganiello's character, Deathstroke. Do you have any idea what you were talking about or what you were alluding to, what you were teasing at the end of that thing, which you seemingly yes. sadly will never see? Oh, but, is that right? Well, okay, okay. I don't want to break news to you, but I don't think it's okay. Going. Uh, I, oh, then, then I semi-didn't. Yeah, I mean, I knew Oh, no, what well, it was. this is really awkward then. No, 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 no. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure... <laughs> But I don't know. Ex- I don't know explicitly as much as you know because I'm not following the the, threads the myths of, the- of all the things. Yeah. But um. Yeah. No. I asked. Uh. Yeah. Yes. What am I talking about? This is like the first job of an actor. What <laughs> am know. I talking maybe, about here? I mean, maybe not for all actors. Maybe some just show up and just say the words. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you're a spe- you're a consummate professional. You need to know <laughs> yeah, yeah. what you're talking about. Buddha Hagen taught me to always ask, "What am I talking about here? <laughs> what the fuck am I doing here?" Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um. Yeah. No. I knew at the time. I can't tell you what it is now. 
but yeah, I knew what it was at the time. Sure. Do you feel anything left on the table for Lex Luthor? You, do I have anything left on the table? No, never. No, I mean, I don't. No, um, no. But I loved it. I mean, I loved yeah. every moment of it. It, it was great. I, I, I would not have thought of myself for it. So to me, it was all like yeah. house money. I would call it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So for okay. So for this one, there were some other random tangential things that uh, occurred to me when watching Art of Self Defense. Are you interested in self improvement? Do you take Classes? Have you taken, um, you know, learning another language, martial arts? Uh, no, no. I'm <laughs> short answer. Nope. I'm suspicious of anybody in you know authority telling me that yeah. this is a better way to live your life. I always think the person is a psychopath. Um, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> the, they're usually doing it for their own reasons, but this has the mask of benevolence, and I'm suspicious of any kind of thing like that because it seems insincere. But um, so I don't do anything like that. But uh, have you had a mentor? Have you ever had an evil or good mentor? Uh, an evil, a good mentor. <laughs> yes, I mean, I've had, yes. I mean, the person who changed my creative life more than anybody was Bob Odenkirk. You know him? Yeah. Um, because I, when I was like 16 through 21, I was writing movie scripts that were like really commercial, like Adam Sandler type movie scripts. <laughs> you know, Adam Sandler Netflix movie script. <laughs> uh, it gives you an indication of, I don't even know what I'm talking about, but yeah, I think you do. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> and like, um, so... And uh, so I said, and so, and then I met Bob because we were going to do a movie together, like a real dark, um, independent film called The Fuck Up. Can I say that? Yeah. Yeah, by this great book, Arthur Nece- by Arthur Nesessian's great so book. So had you done Roger Dodger by this point? Yeah, I'd just done that movie okay. and I met Bob. I was 21 or something and I gave Bob this script that had been optioned by like, was it Michael Bay's company or Depth of Field, Paul White's company? Yeah, yeah. That was like a big comedy script and they were selling it to Universal or something. I was like 19 when I wrote it. I gave it to Bob and Bob has no filter and he's really bright. And he called and said, buddy, why are you writing this, man? I could write this in a weekend for Adam Sandler. I'd be hired to write this in a weekend. Why are you writing this? You're a smart, thoughtful, sensitive guy. Write something personal. And I was mortified. I vowed to never talk to him again. I, you know, I'd spent five years writing these things. I had written like four scripts. Three of them were optioned by like Hollywood companies. I was thought this was like an amazing success story. And he also said, none of these are ever going to get made. These guys buy them and they shelve them. Right. None of these will ever get made. And I was miserable. And then I went to do a movie in Europe and I knew I had a cousin in Poland who survived the war. And I went to visit her on a lark and I had um, uh, this amazing experience with her. I'm sure as many Jewish kids do when they meet a survivor, that's part of their family. Mm-hmm. You have some revelatory experience about your own past. And so I wrote... Uh, um, so I started writing, and I real, and I also have a background in theater. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I could write a play about this woman, and she's such an interesting character. On the one hand, she's a survivor, and on the other hand, she's tough and funny. You know, she's not just a victim and everything. Yeah. And I could also write about me and my selfishness as an American going there with all of my privilege and with all of my, you know, uh, obnoxious, um, you know, uh, you know, all of my, um, uh, you know, kind of. Um, not just manifestations of my own entitlement, right, uh-huh. compared to her life. And so I started writing a play about it. I was like 22, and uh, that became my first play. Vanessa Redgrave ended up playing my cousin. It gets translated and performed around the world. I've seen it in different languages. Uh, and that was my first play. I, my, my fourth play just finished last week. Susan Sarandon played the main part. So I've now I have like a real playwriting career, and it was all because Bob told me to stop writing these things. I would have kept going. I mean, I had my... Saturday Night Live sketch packet ready to submit. I really wanted to be a comedy writer. And yeah, Bob told me, write something personal. And that's exactly what you were talking about before was you were, you were kind of whether consciously or unconsciously following what you thought you were supposed to do as opposed to being true to your own sensibilities. Exactly that. Exactly that. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because Bob came from real game. Bob came from comedy. He wrote on the Ben Stiller sketch show. He wrote on Saturday Night Live and the Simpsons. And then he ended up doing the sketch show, Mr. Show, which was like a sketch show on acid. It was so off the wall. And that's really what he likes to do. 
and now he ends up doing these kind of like dark acting parts. So he, he, he in a way, kind of followed his advice as totally. well, you know, and, and you look at his career as like kind of this very unusual set of things, but that's all the stuff he really likes doing. It's so it's interesting. You, you talk about that, that period when you were 21. Like I think of, of your early roles, and we've talked about them a bit in the past, whether it's Roger Dodger and Squid and the Whale. And then I, I look at something, and I, like was there a wake-up call when like the first quote-unquote failures, maybe too strong a word, but you were on a very infamous production, Cursed. Oh, yeah. This like Wes Craven movie that yeah. from what I gather was essentially like reshot. Like they just did it again. That's right, yeah. A hundred and... 20 days, yeah, so for what's an 80-minute movie. What's the learning from that? Is that a wake-up call in some ways to sort of like the, the dark ways the industry can, can compromise itself? And, and I mean, that was a direct result of, of the Weinstein stuff you read about now. Not the horrific sexual yeah. assault stuff, but they're... But the cutting up of the films and over-management of directors or whatever. That's a great understatement. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, bullying yeah. everybody on yeah. set, including me. Uh, 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 I didn't... I didn't actually want to do the movie, and they basically threatened me. I know where you live. I'm not, I'm not joking. Yeah. So wait, wait, wait. So had you already done a Weinstein movie? How, why were you threat? Why were you pushed no, so into I auditioned a, for the movie. Yeah. Because I, you know, at the time I auditioned for anything that came sure. across my desk, like any actor does. But I never expected to get offered any parts. So when they actually offered it to me, I was like, wait, I have to sit down and figure out what this is. I gave the script to my dad, who you know I was living at home at the time. Yeah. I gave the script to my dad. My dad said, "What would you? You can't do this thing. Why would you do? Why would you? Why would you do this? You know, it's like uh, because now I really like the script. It's by Kevin Williamson. Yeah. He's a really clever writer. Yeah. But my dad wanted me to go to college and the only way I could not go to college was if I was doing these kind of like highbrow things that my dad kind of appreciated like Roger Dodger and the Squid and the Whale, right? And so my dad said, no, you know, go to school. If you're just going to do a kind of a commercial thing, go to go back to college, right? Yeah. And so... Uh, so I told the agent I didn't want to do it, and they said, you know, you can't do that. You auditioned for it. So they set me up on a meeting with Bob Weinstein, who basically tell, told me, I'll ruin your career if you don't do this movie. I'm not joking. And as I was leaving the office, he said, and just remember, I know where you live. I was like, are you kidding? He said, no. What? No. He said, my people tell me where you live. I'm not joking. Did you like laugh at it? Like, you're like what's, what's the reaction in the moment of that? Like, you took him seriously? I was a 20-year-old kid. I was petrified. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Now, I don't want to put down the movie because I actually liked the first draft of the movie was actually really good. They ruined it. I mean, ultimately, by rewriting it all the time. And yeah, but um, yeah, but that was like, it's funny because when all this (laughs) stuff started coming out, I was like, oh, my God, they did this to everybody. And now I'm not comparing what happened to me, obviously, to any kind of the sexual assault stuff is in a completely different league. But in terms of like bullying people working on their movies, like, my goodness gracious. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, okay. Jump, jumping around a, a little bit. What do you, you, you talked about like kind of like to enjoying being directed. So being in something like social network must mm. be a pleasure because you're in the hands of Fincher. Did you enjoy that? You probably knew the kind of experience you were getting into considering the specificity of a Sorkin script, knowing the way David shoots. Mm-hmm. Did you find yourself in a comfortable? Is, is that a comfortable position to be in, or is? Oh, it's like uh, the greatest luxury. Yeah. So my background is in theater, where like you know you would do a show. My last play, I did it two hundred times in you know two countries. So I and and still I wish I could do it a hundred more times. Like I feel like I still haven't exactly figured it out. Yeah. Um. You know, or you know, little moments here sure. that you want to perfect. And so uh, to do like a thousand takes of I mean a hundred takes of a scene or whatever to me is the best possible luxury you can have in a movie. Yeah. I mean the great the great downside of doing independent films, which typically have greater characters, you know, and all that stuff is that you don't have enough time to really explore the scenes, you know? Um, So, you know, you usually prepare a little more beforehand or whatever, but like, um, no, so with that and with somebody who's so brilliant and who has so many ideas about each character in each moment, no, it's the greatest luxury you could possibly have. Was it awkward meeting Zuckerberg at SNL or was that like... So like when you're doing that kind of thing, like you're in such a 
unbelievably heightened state. And by that, by that kind of thing, I mean like doing press for a movie for yeah. six months, you know, which is kind of what those things are. And then being on a show like Saturday Night Live, which is like a whirlwind of an experience that gives you no time to like, you know, step back and pinch yourself about yeah. this cool thing that you're doing. So like I met him probably in the best possible circumstances for it to be the least uncomfortable because everything else around me was so uncomfortable. And uh, no, I mean, I think he probably looks at me like, um, uh, you know, like I'm not the main culprit of like, pre of contextualizing his thing in a way that seems controversial. Right. I think he probably sees me as like, you You're know, functionary. You just work here. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And we were hired cause there's similarities, you know, and, and I was hired cause there's similarities rather than like, you know, I have some dark perspective on, you know, the sinister workings of this company, which I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't expect you to know this cause I've learned that you live in a media cocoon, but, yeah, yeah. but, but, but uh, Sorkin has, uh, whether seriously or, or, or not said that he potentially would be interested in another script, another, Tale of Mark yeah, somebody mentioned that to me in another interview, but I don't. I'm not aware of it. Does yeah, that aware of at it. all pique your interest to know that he? And I apparently Rudin also is like. Oh yeah, I mean it's interesting because then it's become you know so relevant again. You know that company because it's like the company is both relevant in a specific way, but also as an emblematic kind of as emblematic of you know our changing ideas about you know privacy issues and our changing yeah. ideas about data and stuff like that. So yeah, of course there's so many interesting themes. Does it make for a movie? I don't know. Somebody could crack it, it'd be a brilliant guy like Aaron Sorkin. So beyond Peppa Pig yeah. and NBA basketball. Yeah. I assume you haven't seen Game of Thrones. You haven't seen a Marvel or DC movie. You haven't seen a Star Wars movie. Are these safe assumptions? Those are all correct. You know, these kind of things obviously are great, and these are cultural no, touchstones, is, I, but yeah, they require not. an amount of viewing that I cannot give myself to. You know what I mean? I can't. Yeah. These things he that are. He has 12 obscure NBA basketball games to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but the thing about basketball, you can dip in and out, and the rules are all the same. Right. But you can't go watch Avengers Endgame having seen none of the other Marvel right. movies because you, you could just look at the guys by right. color. You know what I mean? Do you want me to just uh, summarize what happens? Uh, maybe that's a shortcut for you. You don't even have to do that. I'm not even going to worry about it. It has no impact on my life. <laughs> no one walks up to me on the street with a gun and say, name the three characters who are magnetized. And I don't have to. We're living in strange times. This could happen. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> looking out for your self-interest. I'm interested interest. in them as like kind of commentaries on culture, you know, yes. but I could also just read the op-ed page in the Times. You know, <laughs> but that is interesting to me. And I have a friend on Game of Thrones, Bella Ramsey, the young okay. girl on it. Do you know who I'm talking about? She's yeah. a 15-year-old girl. Yeah. I think she plays, I don't know if she plays on it. And so um, uh, I'm kind of curious to see her because she's a great actress. But the problem is like to just watch a scene from it, you'd have no sense of right. the context and it just requires, it's such a commitment. Well, uh, what are you, are you writing right now? Are you working Yeah, I'm writing a book for Audible. Oh. So, you know, Audible does these like straight to audio books, yeah. everything. So yeah, I'm writing a book now. So I'm halfway through. Yeah, and that's uh, it's due in August actually. And you've been associated with some some TV projects. Are you are you working on a TV project that you would write or direct? Or is that I had a project that I was writing and directing with J.J. Abrams, yeah. and uh, it got turned down by each company. You know, respectfully so, but turned down nonetheless. Was Bob Weinstein involved? <laughs> no, 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 maybe. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, and I nor could I get the addresses of anybody who turned it down, so it wasn't helpful. <laughs> Um, it's always good to catch up with you. Uh, did, we say, did we say enough about the art of self-defense? Uh, here's what you need to know. It's, it's a great piece of writing, a great piece of acting, from, uh, and a great piece of material from Riley Stearns as a writer-director. Uh, it's funny. It tackles a very topical issue in to toxic masculinity. Yeah. Uh, what else do they need to know? Uh, I don't know. It's just an absolutely brilliant satire on, on uh, you know, I guess what people are calling toxic masculinity, this kind of dangerous masculinity in society. Uh, I, 
I, I'll just say one more thing, which yes. is relevant to our conversation, which is that Riley wrote the movie in 2015, um, and then while we were filming the movie, I think actually it was on my birthday, October 5th, um, we were uh, two, uh, this was 2017, we were filming the movie and the Harvey Weinstein story was bro uh, broke, and so the movie took on this very unusual thing because we were reading about this horrific man and the abuses yeah. uh, 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 and, and, um, and, and, and the horrible uh, you know, exploitation, um, and, uh, and then doing this movie about kind of the dangers of masculinity. And so the movie coming out now has taken on this kind of different feeling because people are filtering it through, uh, you know, the culture, you know, yes. cultural discussions about toxic masculinity. And so uh, uh, the movie was prescient in a lot of ways, but also I think the movie so subtly and in a lot of ways unintentionally, um, you know, talks about the, the things we're all talking about today, even though I, when I first read it, again, this is before the Me Too movement, I just thought it was one of the funniest things I've ever read and kind of very sly commentary. But now, of course, it's increasingly relevant, unfortunately. Definitely, definitely. Uh, look at that. 40 minutes, yet three hours of content. Bang for your buck always on the Half Second <laughs> second Confused podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, don't be a stranger. I'm sure I'll see you on the Zombieland circuit oh, soon great. enough. Great. And um, yeah, don't be a stranger. Five years, too long between podcasts. I know, I know, I know, I know. I know. What are we going to do? I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll move to an office with a window again. Yeah, or maybe I'll try to do more films. <laughs> <laughs> You're busy. You're watching NBA basketball. Of course, I know. And raising a child. That's true. Congrats, buddy. Thanks a lot. Good to see you. Great to see you. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>